0: Hello and welcome to the First Time Founders Podcast, the show where we talk about how to start a business from nothing and grow it into something meaningful. Today we're talking to John Mason. John Mason's a well-known UK hospitality entrepreneur specializing in learning technologies. John was the founder of a platform called Vidlios, which was a mobile video first learning platform that really disrupted the UK hospitality sector in in learning um, 10 or so years ago. John grew the business to work with some of the leading UK hospitality operators, took that business through COVID, which is extremely difficult as we all know. And then most recently started a new business called Sideways, which is also a mobile first video platform specializing in learning for UK hospitality. What's really interesting about this conversation is John talks about what he learned from the Vidlios experience and what he's doing differently with Sideways based on his first-time founder experiences. I think you're going to find the conversation really useful. I certainly did. So without further ado, my conversation with John Mason.
1: Big John Mason, welcome to the First-Time Founders podcast. Thanks for doing this. Mate, it's a pleasure. You know me. i Big fan of yours. Big fan of what you've done, and I'm now a big fan of what you're trying to do. So uh, I'm all yours, buddy. I
0: appreciate it very, very much. So before we go full bromance, should we should we bring the the listeners and watchers up to speed on on our relationship, how we got to know each other? But I suppose the preamble to that is how you got started in being a founder and making your way into hospitality.
1: Yeah, um, I have to go back in the memory banks quite a while because i've been a kind of entrepreneur or whatever that word is for a long long time i i I didn't do well at school so i i had to i went out and learned from others and i asked loads of questions and that's how i learned and you know I, i bugged the crap out of people until i found the answers that would enable me to become better at what i was trying to do um and that was a long long process but then i at the age of 27, I founded some software before software is even a thing, and it was mildly successful. And a lot of the things I've done have been mildly successful. Right? I've earned a living, uh, and and then others have been a bit better. And and you know, and 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 I've always, you know, a lot of the times, and this is this is probably uh, how a lot of your. Uh, le- uh listeners would would feel too have been ahead of the curve right so you've kind of got this thing and you go hey check this out and it's amazing and and the world's just not ready for whatever that is right maybe the bandwidth isn't good enough or you know when we we're doing video for example it wasn't quite fast enough and um you know and and then you you keep going because you're just so damn committed to it and <laughs> And you find that you run out of steam eventually, right? Or the world catches up again and then someone leapfrogs you and it's all over. So... What was was the first business, the video business, John? No, no. Um, My first ever business was some golf software that I founded, which was a stats tracking piece of kit that was on a CD-ROM. And... I sold it into uh, what you would call WH Smiths, but in New Zealand it was called uh, Whitcalls, which was the equivalent of, right? So it was a CD-ROM that sat on a shelf next to books, next to golf books, and they bought quite a few of them. So I made a little bit of money out of that, and then golfers were using it in golf associations, et cetera, et cetera, but it was on a CD-ROM. So, you know, back when you had to (laughs) plug it in to your bloody machine, right? So way ahead of its time. And if you look now, now you've, there's apps that will record your swing that will real-time, uh, you know, talk to a coach and all this sort of stuff, which I use some of that technology now. And people laugh at me, my mates, my golf mates, where they go, you know, you 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 built this thing so, so many years ago, right? I built <laughs> it worked on a Nokia phone, for God's sake, you know? So, really? Yeah, so Java and all that sort of thing, good stuff. And then I got into... Apps with another business partner, uh, and we built some of the first global um, hospitality ordering apps. So we we built Subway's ordering app in many parts of the world except America. We built Pizza Hut's web and mobile ordering app. We built um, oh, there, there's a handful of other others, including Nando's, right? And and then I decided that i wanted to do something different i want to do something for myself and that's when vidlios came about which are a lot of people that may may recognize me some of our friends and colleagues in the industry will recognize me for that because that was kind of a 10-year journey as well and now we've we've moved on from videos and we're uh we've got a new platform called sideways which so videos was a visual learning platform and sideways is a more of a bottom-up learning activation platform and it's centred around anyone can share knowledge and upload it all into one place and we can all get access to it from there and then we can surface it into more structured learning and courses and things like that from there. So that's where I am currently.
0: Well, it, it was through Vidlios that we met each other, wasn't it? I remember I was I was out trying to, you know, build Yapster, our SaaS platform at the time and I kept running into customers that saying, you've got to meet John Mason, such a great guy. And then, I can't remember, we had a beer at some partner event, I think, and uh, you accused me of ditching you with the most boring people at the party, if I remember, but there was that banter that I (laughs) I feel like formed our friendship.
1: everyone wants to speak to you, but me, not so much, right? So uh, you are a little social butterfly, flitting around, (laughs) talking to all the people I only wish I could talk to. And then, where the hell did Rob go, and why am I stuck with this person? I remember that. I do remember
0: that. Uh, that's they, they were they were really really good times, uh, and it's amazing when you when that you're part of a cohort of founders and you're all nobody's in the minds of the customers that you're targeting. Right? You might be a somebody in your previous thing, but you're it's new. Nobody knows you. Nobody knows your thing. And the the only kindred spirits really are the other guys and gals <laughs> out there in the that, same that. boat. It's like the losers at high school, right? Trying to get into the popular groups.
1: Well, I did enjoy our uh, sessions where we'd have a bitch and moan about stuff. I have to admit that. So, uh, <laughs> some of them. Well, let's do le- Moaning was about the same people or companies. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, well, like we'll we we'll, we'll, maybe we'll shield some names of companies and people to protect the innocent, but why don't we go on the record and talk a bit about some of those experiences? Because it was amazing. So let's unpack Bidlyos a bit more then. Um, can you remember who your first handful of customers were and and why they why they bought yeah, in, I, what I, it was I, about the proposition I, I that vividly, resonated?
1: Yeah, I vividly remember it. Um, we were really fortunate that uh, I knew Richard Tallboy at uh, Wagamama, and uh, through the – we actually built Wagamama's first ordering app too, and that was when I was at a company called Altain, and um, – so I reached out to him and say, look, I'm doing my own thing, this is what I'm doing. It's all centered around learning and sharing knowledge and um, creating videos in this kind of new medium for learning where, where video meets learning, hence the name videos, right? So it was part video, part, part uh, learning. And um, we, he said, that sounds really interesting. And he handed me over to uh, Sarah Macklot, who was the head of L&D there. And I met Stephen Mangleshot at the same time, who was, who still is, uh, their executive head chef, who's a tremendous guy, so full of character. And they immediately got it; they knew the video would probably help them out. And so when we when we built uh, videos, we um, we had to build a production arm because we quickly worked out well if we don't do the videos for people, we're dead in the water. Because they can't, they don't have the capabilities to do it themselves. So, and, and I, sorry, John,
0: just stop you there. Does that mean that they weren't uploading any video or they were uploading video that was so poor that nobody yeah. was going to consume it?
1: Well, not, let's not, let's take like out of that equation, but no one was doing video, right? And right. if they were, it was uh, external, right? It was marketing. It was, you know, big shiny production values, all that sort of thing, which is not what you need internally right? Internally, you need shorter, more um, crafted um, content that connects to the learning audience. Who's the audience that we're going after? What do they need to know? Front of house, back of house, service, systems, menu, whatever that is, right? Stephen immediately got it and we've continued to be really good friends. Uh, post it and and we, we still do some work with Wagamama. Um, even now with a it's smaller because they have some in-house capabilities now, but but they ran with it. So we did every single menu item, every step to service, all their cars and stuff. You know, we probably did hundreds, or not probably, we did hundreds and hundreds of videos for them, which they put into video. And they were really
0: at- well known for storytelling, weren't they?
1: Yeah. We, we were the pioneers with them on that, right? So we, we got them across the line with it. And someone that is as... um a greater storyteller and really, um, you know, outward and outgoing as Stephen picked it up and ran with it, right? And then he got his team to get involved. So his, the chefs under him got involved, Carl and Surendra and a few others, and they turned it into a thing. And, you know, we caught up about a year ago and had a a nice steak meal together. And, you know, he was really humble and said, hey, John, thanks for helping us. Now he's gone on to do cooking shows and he's been on Ramsey shows and he's done all sorts of things because he is that good. You know, he could have his own show. But anyway, going back to the videos, video and a platform, there was no platform that could house him, right? Learning management systems are so clunky and so poorly designed. Even to this day, they can't house video. They can't, they can't house it. They can't surface it where it's required. So you know we're winning the war on that visual front, and we we continue to win the war on it. Um, but yeah, we Wagamama were the first. God bless them, and they paved the way. As soon as we had Wagamama, then obviously others wanted to listen, and we managed to get other big brands off the back of that.
0: Because so. you got you got up to about fifty or so customers, didn't you, going into COVID? Yeah, we had did some you
1: really nice big brands when we're <laughs> when we're going strong. So uh...
0: and <clears throat> did you? Did you find that they all wanted to be Wagamama and what's a delicate way of asking this? And fuck it, I don't need to be delicate, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> like, I mean, like what, uh, uh, what percentage of customers had the charisma and the quality of proposition to have any chance of telling a story as good as Wagamama?
1: Don't that's, name names. What that's percentage? a really good and unfair question, right? Because we, <laughs> we wouldn't call people out, but they... You know, they're the leaders and thought leaders of what they do with their people, with their menu, design, everything. And so they are They are probably still, um, I'm a little bit out of it with them in terms of, you know, being in the day-to-day stuff, but they're still the thought leaders in a lot of things. I mean, they were the, what was that tracking system? Was it a peach or something? They outperformed the market for like hundreds of weeks on the bounce, right? And that's because they do things well. Um, but the others couldn't match them in terms of quality, uh, if I'm honest, but they did their versions of whatever that was, right? And some got better. And now we're seeing smaller upstart brands that aren't so small anymore. But you know if you look at uh, Pizza Pilgrims as one of our foundation clients with smaller clients when we had videos and now bigger clients with um, sideways is that they've just picked it up and run with it. When we started doing videos, mate, they were three, four minutes long. Now Pilgrim's videos are 30 seconds long. And contain everything that they need to say, right? What (laughs) we have to do, mate, 100%, what we have to do now is we've got to meet learners and young people where they are in the middle, right? They doom scroll through everything. If we don't capture their imagination or intention, engage with them and serve learning up to better suit their needs, they're not going to learn they just they just well, like no thanks right so uh,
0: i mean it's interesting you said at the beginning um, you've frequently been a bit too early in markets you know with your golf cd when i was learning on in carter remember in carter the the senior yeah. encyclopedia because you're a bit older than me so <laughs> so but it's interesting <laughs> so <laughs> but it's interesting you um, to be a great to, to, you can be a great entrepreneur that also gets an outcome and some of it is timing, right? If you're too late, then you've got no chance. But also if you're too early, you potentially have got years of struggle exactly. ahead. And the, reason, it, and the reason I was asking that slightly awkward question about how many of the customers were ready to be great through Vidlios is because I imagined that 10, 15 years on, you've got a new generation of leaders, particularly in hospitality where the talent turns over quite quickly, where they probably are ready and it's great that you then immediately just went on unprompted to pizza pilgrims because um am I right in guessing that there are more customers now with the right DNA and the right people to be great storytellers so that you actually can make, can be successful by making them even more successful?
1: Yeah, there are Um short answer is yes. Um, But we're still trying to figure out who some of those are. So, um, you know, we, I have a mantra now, which um, is all around that we can help businesses help themselves, but we can't help the ones that can't. You know, so if good you're not, for you, mate. if you're not good for, you know, you, if you don't have great products and services and give a shit about it, and you and all your people, secondly, right? So it starts with your products and services. Then you got to be super kind to your people to keep them and be better with them and pay them well and all those things. And then the last thing has to be around. You know, what are we doing for the planet? What are we doing that's, you know, uh, making things better, you know, all around? Because, we're you know, you've just had a kid. I've got a a 14-year-old daughter. I want to leave a place in a bit better. uh, Certainly do my part in that, right? So, and I don't want to bang on about that, but that is a thing that I'm aware of, you know, and, and some people agree or don't agree, but certainly with food, and service and systems and all those sorts of things, we have to be doing the right things, right? We have to be doing things better and differently. So well, even
0: if our generation and people, you know, older than us don't get it,
1: the reality is their customers
0: and their employees do care. So I, I agree. And I, I think I mean we both did different sides of communications, right? And I came to the same resolution eventually the same realization eventually that a communication tool couldn't fix structural dysfunction in an organization it we, we, always, we ended up saying that we're the microphone you're the band if you guys can't play in time and in tune then like we're just gonna make you louder and out of time and out of tune <laughs> um, but it took years of struggle for me to summon the courage to say that to customers was it the same same for you like wait can you remember the moment where you started saying this is what we are this is what we believe this is what successful customers look like
1: I think I'm this or are not to be- Videos we kinda never got there because people came to us (laughs) because you needed the money. (laughs) Yeah. That and but people came to us um because they had a need. And it's a lot like what's happening with Sideways now, but we're we're a lot better and as you grow up and as you get um better at what you do and I look at it as a lifetime's work, right? So I'm you know, in my mid fifties. I've got limited time left work wise, I've probably got 10 more good years that I'm going to focus and try to kick some ass but um, I don't want to work with companies I can't help I don't want to work with companies that can't help themselves. Uh, If we're building a long tail and sometimes we won't be able to recognize that and I get that, but we won't have the same interaction with those customers you know we our customers that are we have now that we've had for 10 years are really important to me and i care deeply about it and so we always go the extra mile and it keeps you thinking and it keeps you on your toes but you know the longer tail where they just come in to use it as a service then they can just use they can plug and play and knock themselves out but our ones that we care about that we've had for a long time and that we will build new business uh relationships as well, then we're always trying to be get 1% better and try and help them to get better sort of thing. So,
0: If you were advising a first-time B2B SaaS founder that had their first 10, 20, 30 customers, would you be saying to them, fire the bad customers?
1: I would now, but I'm in a different spot, right? So Talk just, about that. What do you mean? They're going to be a headache, right? They're going to cause you grief. The ones that pay you the least want the most, quite often right so the ones that are that are um that you took on board because you needed the money often be often are the biggest headaches right and they're in your face and they're always you know on you know it feels like they're on you the whole time and so there's a balance between um you know taking the money just for the money's sake so you have to I, I treat it now that when we, uh, when I'm on calls with uh, with customers, potential customers and prospects, I'm interviewing them as much as they're interviewing me because I can't help them if there's things that I hear or they signal to things that I think will. And then I go deeper on those things just to make sure where they're at, right? Because, um, you know, engagement, uh, um, people problems, and all the rest of it there's some of that we can take care of with better content and a better platform but if they've got um things that are fundamentally wrong in their businesses like you said um you, you often can't help because they won't execute properly anyway right they'll just hope that it's the magic bullet and without the execution totally. we can't We can't do the right things, right? So uh,
0: Yeah, and and I think let's expand on that for first-time founders that are listening that won't entirely understand, right? The the reason that they're so expensive to serve is because you actually structurally can't help them and they desperately feel that they need help. So the volume of help they think they need is so much more than the budget they allocated to your service, which would have been adequate for a customer that's a good fit, right? Like, One of the things we found often in in the communication space was we might be dealing with a really visionary people leader, maybe a communications manager, someone that, that perhaps didn't have the authority, the organizational authority to fix some of the underlying causes of disengagement in the organization. So what they would do is they'd lean much harder into the things they could control, which would be the small team of people around them and then their suppliers, of which I was one. And you'd be coming back saying, "Look, I, I, we will do, we will kill ourselves for you." But the solution is, you need to get your CEO to give a shit, and then communicate to the organisation that he or she gives a shit. And mm. the comms manager would be saying, "Well, I can't do that, can I? Like, like clearly, like the CEO is the CEO. What, like, I can't do anything about that. So therefore, let's focus our time and attention on." some particular button or widget or feature in, in the platform yeah
1: it's not going um, fast enough or it's not doing
0: this or that or whatever
1: right so right.
0: but it's it's hard because there is always a grain of truth in the thing that they're asking you to make better so i think as a new founder unless you're a total sociopath your the instinct is i know my thing can be better so i agree let's make it better but kind of in that you lose the authority to say and you need to get your house in order client side.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting. I I subscribe and listen to and read the guys that started Basecamp. I don't know if you're aware of those guys, but they're kind of my I look up to them, right? Because <laughs> right this, this is the this is the Basecamp book on products development cycles. Yeah, hundred percent. Go on, keep going, John. This is brilliant. Yeah. So, you know, their um rework book and their rework podcasts and all the rest of it. But, you know, they're profitable from day one, which is a tough gig, right? And they've got their own way that they do things. And they, you know, what inspired me about them was they got their pricing right. They got their product right. They knew who their audience was. And those are the things that are critical, right? So for me, knowing who your end customer is, uh, what size of business they are, what their budget will be, how do you fit that? How do you service that? How do you keep it profitable for your business and doing all of those things? Because they are one hundred percent so important to your success or failure, right? So uh, it's, it's, it's so true. Can Can you just walk us through that for for Sideways then? So who yeah.
0: would be the ideal customer for Sideways? So it's
1: who, changing. Who it. Good. Good thing is it's changing. But what we identified and what the rework guys say is they uh, they're going after the Fortune five million right? So everyone wants to fortune 500 <laughs> because they're going to pay you 2 million bucks to install it for all of their their 2 million employees and all this sort of stuff. But that's a 12 to 18 month sales cycle that'll break most companies, right? Unless you're Salesforce or some of those other big guys. Um, whereas when you can go after companies that, so we figured out that our our um, sweet spot was around 250, 300 people, organisations, right? We could service them really well. We could lift, shift the needle for them. We could instantly make an impact. And we, I looked at pricing and, you know, when we are smaller, we came out the back of COVID and we had a product that, you know, was, um, that did what it was supposed to do. And it was, it was keeping up to what we said it would do. Um I looked at the pricing and the pricing is so damn critical. Everyone prices everything the same. And I looked at Basecamp and I saw what they're doing. And we're more expensive than Basecamp because our product comes with content, right? So we can do right. your clients training all the rest of it. And if you were to buy that off the shelf from somewhere else, which would be terrible, which people do, and I, I want to call out the people that are doing a really bad job because they've just been ripping people off, is that we priced it. So like to give you an example, our average um, Average uh, customer was paying us five thousand pounds a year, right? right? That's gone up, that's hitting now seven and a half because we've got these bands. But I think now, with some new products and features we're building, we're going to get over the 10. So we're starting to creep up because we're offering so much more value. So you can easily see the value you're getting. But for a lot of companies, they either start way too high. Uh, And no one can afford it you know if you think about these companies that were doing the you know the gamification and that they could only ever go after you know the the big guys the guys that could pay the 100 grand for rendering of these things that you wore virtual headsets for and all that which are crazy right that only sir that serves one percent of any uh industry so we were, going, we're going after the, the bottom half, and it's mainly ignored, right? So it's mainly okay. um, disproportionate um, because companies don't the bigger companies don't want their business. It's too hard. They think it costs too much to get. We hug it and do the best we can with it. and there is thousands of companies, right? So you know Basecamp has 30,000 customers geez, I want to be more like Basecamp, right? And I want to get that 200 bucks, 500 a 1000 bucks a month that's paid every single month from those companies that love your product and service solution support. That's kind of the model we're heading towards. But we're now building some more, um, you know, future-proofed um, features that are costing quite a bit of money to build. So that will mean we're, we're going to be able to target the, Five hundred a thousand two thousand three thousand uh people operators out there, so well,
0: I guess it's like your example with pizza pilgrims, right the nature of your business is that some of those customers will, will will grow and you obviously need to keep evolving to be able to to be able to grow with them and the feedback that I hear about you in the market constantly is that those cool boutique brands that are going to be the future sort of growers of tomorrow love the relationship and the service they get from you at a price point, they can they can justify. So I can see why that strategy makes sense. And then based on your prior experience with Vidlios, you know how to not waste money on operations, right? So every penny they do spend on you, you put into productive investments that they actually value, right? Because there's nothing worse than not charging a lot, pissing all the money away, and then only being able to deliver a really crap service.
1: <laughs> yeah. The thought has crossed my mind, but unfortunately, yeah, we, we can't do that. But um, yeah, we've invested it all back in... And, you know, like one of the things we spoke about offline was when we built Vidlios, I had a partner who was the dev guy, like Craig is to you with Yapster and, you know, both boffins, both big, you know, planet-sized brains and stuff um, that did a lot of the hard yards. Well, in our case, did all the hard yards. But we always put off this idea of, um, you know, outsourcing the development. And I was always told it was too risky, it takes too long, we'd have to bring them up to speed, we have to do this, do that. So I just immediately thought, I used to think that was, okay, that's what it is, right? And then when your hand gets forced that you have to do it that way, and it's a bit scary, um, you know, you, you bite the bullet and you do it and you figure out that uh, it's not scary and then you've got 25 year old MIT students, you know, out of Maribor In Slovenia, doing our stuff for us, who are insanely good at what they do and care so deeply care about it, and I've got a one, I've got such an amazing relationship with them. And yeah, it's not all bear and skittles, but you know, it's eighty to ninety percent worked out way greater than my expectations. Right? So, you know, again, another thing like that, where as older founders to release everything and to go learn something new and do something new and not have control over it as such and, you know, to for it to blow out a bit here and there and you're always trying to find extra money to pay for it. But my vision about all that is if we're not progressing, we'll never get to the end point, right? We'll never, there'll never be a, a payday as such because we have to keep going. You know, so it's,
0: it, it's interesting um, you, you use the phrase forced your hand. That was exactly my experience as well. Um, Yapster went into the coronavirus lockdowns, which for those that weren't in the sort of frontline economy or it weren't in the um, consumer services economy, all of the customers were closed. Right. When the mandatory lockdowns came. So that meant many, even if they were under contract, oh, oh, oh. stop paying it, stop. Yeah, stop paying their bills for a while and yapster like videos like John's business at the time was solely serving that market so we had 30 people going into the crisis and i laid off uh, 24 went from 30 to 6 just to just to stop the potential hemorrhaging of um cash because even as the government rolled off furlough like furlough wasn't completely free to companies and it got progressively less free over time and a lot of small suppliers just bled out right waiting for the market to spring back which it didn't quite do, in, other than that um, period when Rishi did Eat Out to Help Out, where it went go-go, but then it all sort of died afterwards for like a year. The 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 thing I learned most about that was how effectively you could operate with virtually no pe- – if you had just a handful of good people. And the people that got laid off, were many of them were really, really good. It was nothing to do with them. It was entirely my fault.
1: And I've seen they've but, gone on to great things, some of them, right?
0: Totally. But –
1: Totally. But as a founder,
0: once you've operated with what feels like no people, you can't unsee that. Now I see flabby supplier businesses left, right and center, and they're pissing away resources that they're expecting either their customers or their investors to fund for no real value because a lot of it's wasted resource. And it's very hard to give first time founders that advice because unless your hand is forced, it feels,
1: it feels reckless to do it, right? Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, you you always said to me, and I struggled with it when we were catching up over beers and stuff, um, and people will think, God, that's all those guys did. But, you know, we only really ever saw each other every three months or so, right? And it was nice for a few hours. Um, But, you know, this kind of, and Rework, the founders, 337 Signals and those guys talk about it all the time. They started with two people. And they built this thing up and now they're still only eighty, you know, and they're worth you know they never want to sell and they do this that, and the next thing. They're eighty people after twenty years, you know yeah, and, and they've they've built this production line and they ship new software and updates and features and everything every six weeks and that's their mantra and how they do things and they do that in teams of two whereas yeah their competitors are Monday and uh, Slack and whatnot and all the others that have teams of developers of 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 people, and they can't keep up with the good work that these guys do, you know? And it's, it's, it, it, that's a thing, right? I mean, that's what you just said, flabby, silly things where where investors go, well, just grow, grow your people, grow this, grow that, so we can look like growth. Well, that doesn't... Mean you're going to get all the sales that come from that,
0: right? So Uh, it 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 seems to me it's a it's a um, it's all about focus, right? The way that Basecamp do that is by being really particular about what they're going to focus on, and you know, look, I'm sure they do a bit of theatrical marketing, shock marketing, like like you know, many people do to get attention. But generally, I think they're a very transparent business, and so you can apply focus when you're honest with your customers about what you are and are not. I think with a lot of those on the sort of venture capital-backed trail, because they've told their investors that they are going to achieve a trillion dollar outcome, they can't really talk the language of focus because it it doesn't resonate with what they've told their team and their investors. And therefore, they can't really start saying to customers, we're going to be the best supplier in the world for this very narrowly defined customer type. We're going to use
1: all the money you gave us. We're going to keep it in the bank for a bit. Right. No, go spend that money. Spend it as fast as you can. And that's what they all say, too. And I'm very mindful of that. So for me, it's like spend it every uh, pound like it's your last one. Right. Fire <coughs> people when your eyeballs are bleeding and you can't do really yourself because that is what's going to make it successful, in my opinion, and not everyone's going to make a successful business. It's not going to go as fast as everyone else's i don't want it to i certainly want to get to hundreds of customers i've seen some we're not going to mention names but i know our competitors or rivals and i know some others that are partners and all the rest that have have 500 600 a thousand customers and they're on the decline now right because they're not keeping up with things so if we can come up if we can be the pizza pilgrims of of our and our market of learning and development and of knowledge capturing and sharing and of you know and and learning engagement, then we will get to the hundreds, uh, but it's going to take us five years, right? It, we're going to get to a hundred within two years. That's my goal, and then it's going to be hundreds by year five and what, whatever by year ten, you know. And 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 I want people to come on that journey with us. That's our partners. That's our um you know potential investors we haven't raised any money yet so you know they have to be on that journey that slow journey too right
0: because totally
1: you know we'll we'll 10x your money but I'm not going to be able to do it for you in two years but if you give me 10 <clears throat> years I can, you know sort of thing I, and if you've made I, enough I money already <laughs> then why are you concerned about <laughs> it right so uh, that type of thing I, and we're going to do some I, good the ultimate thing is I want to change learning for good, right? That takes fucking time. <laughs> yeah, so- I think that's right.
0: And my my view is that the most dangerous thing is you can is fall between the two stalls. I think you can be super lean, customer cash gen, um, driven, and um, I think that works really well. I also think you can you can be on a rocket ship where it's genuinely a sort of winner takes all market opportunity where the product has to mature much faster than the customers can fund its development. You know, like classically a consumer business, for example, where each user's worth a very small amount of money and you need to invest huge fixed costs to build something that all of the people love. Then it makes sense again to be on that venture path. I think the danger for a lot of founders is they, they get lured into the venture capital industrial complex, receive a check that would be a good fit for Facebook when really they're more like a, a Yapster or a Vidlios. And there's no shame in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then they lean into a model that the economics and their market can't afford and their customers don't really want. They don't end up being the next Facebook and there isn't really anywhere to go. So what I preach to founders is take some time to know what you are, be led by what your customers need and want and what your personal time horizons and ambitions are. And then if that means raise a billion dollars, go raise a billion dollars. But don't go like raise a few million that's going to put you on a path to raising a billion if you're never going to get there because those VC folks will happily pull their checks and kill your business if yeah. your metrics don't keep up and then in pursuit of those metrics you'll do crazy crazy things
1: <laughs> totally and and as you say people speak in riddles and there's all the you know the the non truths that happen around metrics and data and all that sort of thing and what do you mean you by know, that, John? What's that? What do you mean by that?
0: Come well, on, you're a direct.
1: You're a direct well, bloke. You don't have to name anyone. But what is some bullshit that people smell? Well, you know, we all. Yeah, you know, I've been in sales. Everyone's everyone should be a salesman, right? But I, I've been in sales for such a long time, and you your prospect list always sounds a lot greater than what it actually <laughs> is. Right? That's and, hope, right? Hope yeah, is not a strategy. Yeah, exactly. And you know. I I don't count a sale until it's a sale, right? I don't. I never ever have done. But the the people that talk about, oh, we've got this client, we we've got we're getting this client, and this client loves us, and that, and then you hear that they don't, right, or or whatever, <laughs> you know. And and then if you look at the other end of the spectrum, so our competitors have all been bought, and so now mm-hmm. these service levels have dropped to to just really average, right? To less than average. And that's that's where I, I can't believe that the, the the company that bought them hasn't figured that out. It hasn't gone, why, why would we do that? Why would we hemorrhage? Why have we bought this only to hemorrhage clients because we're not supporting those clients, right? Or customers. And long may it continue because you know, we're going to eat their lunch, <laughs> but there's there seems to be no obvious change, you know, or anything like that. People are just annoyed with with that, right? And they're not doing what they said they would do, and the buck doesn't stop anywhere. It's it's just lost. With you know, one of them said to me the other day that they waited four weeks to get some to get an answer for something. <laughs>
0: I've got two insights on that, John. So um, this book, The Qualified Sales Leader by John McMahon, every founder that's crap at forecasting should read this. Like it's really good for forcing Um, you to be in. It's so good. But it forces you to take a methodical approach to asking yourself whether you've met the right people in a customer, demonstrated value, such that you can actually kind of predict the the deal. Um, And for customer side people listening, this is not because we, we're, we you know, mad money, money driven folks. It's because without your money, we can't hire people to deliver the service that we promised you. So knowing when you're going to sign and pay is kind of fundamental to not letting you down. That's why forecasting is so important for a founder. So I would really read that book. And then the interesting thing, John, on falling support levels, I totally agree. And I've seen the same thing. My experience at Yapster when we had to downsize drastically to survive COVID, was I think how service levels went up because we went from having a team of very young account managers because that's all we could afford to having quite a big self-serve library and a centrally managed kind of support desk That um, and, and sometimes people get annoyed because you're sending them a link rather than jump, offering to jump on a call in the first instance and they're dealing with what we call it the guide dog team and they're like, I just want to know if I'm speaking to Sarah or Rob. But of course, if Sarah leaves, then they get pissed off because they're like, oh, I like Sarah and now I've got to get to know Adam. But what we always said to them was, CC me on every ticket. And if at any point you feel like we, our organization doesn't care or has dropped the ball, you can pull the stop cord and I promise you I'll intervene and I'll find out what's going on. And it was something like 1% of occasions, like so rarely did I actually need to stop the train that the service levels went up on a cost effective basis. All the customers wanted to hear was that somebody gave a shit and they could stop the train. But like when you look at the kind of stop this train on the tube, right? Like only the very naughtiest kid presses the red button because you know it's disruptive.
1: <laughs> yeah. So most
0: customers are like, they, they actually chilled once they knew that somebody cared and they had like an, a pressure that, What that was that your is
1: experience a, on that? Yeah, I, I, I refer to that as there's a backstop, right? So you're the backstop and you do it. I deal with um, a lot of our service related things and i've got a small team with um uh karen uh purple story and her her team which shares some wonderful um guys like sarah and amy working there who are picking up a lot of the um day-to-day things for us and challenges and and servicing our clients and they do an amazing job and um but I'm always the last guy. I'm always I'm always checking the emails out to see does is this progressing? And and then do I I used to forward everything on to our developers and then I realized that no, let's just wait. Because a lot of times it could be human error, right? And so now what I do is I just say, Can you just go and check these things out for me, please? And those things often fix it, right? And and I used <laughs> you know, before I bug the developers, which is eventually you're gonna cost me money uh to find out that the client the person at the other end wasn't doing it how they should do it you know or you know it wasn't necessarily their fault either but maybe it was our fault that we didn't tell them more but there was a fault somewhere and you know and we never ever say look it, you know it's your fault not our fault of course no you would never do that but a lot of the time it is something that can be sorted out reasonably quickly and as you say if it needs me to intervene and then talk to the developers, my developers will sort it out within a day. If it's something that should totally. be working and it's not working, it gets done, right? But those things only ever, they have to be that. It can't just be some minor thing somewhere that, you know, is a bit of human error as well. So Do you, do you know what, John, the keeps—the theme that keeps coming up is sort of clarity and courage.
0: Right, like It's a bit like having the clarity on who your customer is and the courage to only sell to them. It's the same on customer service, isn't it? It's the clarity to know what the product does and should do and then the courage to take responsibility if the service isn't clear and that you didn't teach the customer well enough, but the courage to say, like, if we pull the stock cord every time you're confused, the product's not going to move forward because I'm going to be distracting my entire organization. Please let me help you to give you a great service within the constraints of the very affordable price I charge you and customers like they're so grown up about that particularly in the world that you work in and that I've worked in previously in hospitality these are operators shit goes wrong all the time every day in their core business
1: like they just hate it when you bullshit them and don't take responsibility yeah it's like the waiter going out and saying I'm sorry the chef's really just you know he's having a you know, that this has happened or that's so, happened. I mean, you don't want to hear that. You just want to hear it's going to be 10 more minutes, right? And, and my apologies. And here's some bear nuts. You know, it's that's that fixes everything, right? Or, you know, we've taken a, a drink, a couple of drinks off your bill, you know, whatever that is, you're like, great, I'm enjoying myself anyway. Happy days, right? Because you owned it. And you got to, those sort of situations, you have to own everything. And sometimes they cause a big knot in the, stomach but like as we know if you let it fester it just gets worse right so you know you you (laughs) own it own it as quickly as you can and 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 get ahead of it because it's only going to get worse right Uh, that was
0: that was my experience as well i don't like conflict but my my desire to avoid conflict now causes me to seek it out earlier because i know that there's going to be less conflict the earlier i face it (laughs)
1: Yeah, and like you said, if you're honest, most people go, "Okay, that's cool, right?" You know, like hundred percent, eighty, at least eighty <clears> percent, <throat> and the twenty that don't, ten percent of them are dicks, and you don't want to work with them anyway, right? So, uh...
0: <laughs> well, it does. It's funny when you take that approach; it does reveal bullying personalities because there are some people that, when you sort of show them your soft underbelly, they'll want to stamp on it. It's just their human urge. And you're right, I would say those are the sorts of folks that if you've got the luxury of picking and choosing who you work with, you might want to politely remove them from your customer roster.
1: Yeah, and even on price, I get 20% of people challenge me on price, even though we're 50% cheaper than our rivals. And so I have that chat with them. And then someone might have a really good reason, you know, that this has happened to their business or that hasn't. So I take that into consideration. But... I definitely say a hard no to most of it, right? Because I just go, no, you're getting a lot of value. You're getting us. You're getting my life's work, you know, my blood, sweat and tears and that, and I'm selling it to you cheaper than I should be. So that's it. And then just shut up, right? Because then they go, okay, cool. That's great, you know? And I'm not yeah, saying yeah, because that. They, they just want to know that, don't they? And And the reality is,
0: you know that you're giving them your everything and they are getting value. And Once you come to a negotiation with that confidence, it, it, yeah, the buyer actually then can feel good about their purchase order because they know they've got the very best value you can give them.
1: And some do it just because, you know, if you ever have to get into those procurement wrangles, some do it because that's the nature of the beast. Mm. But what I've found, even when you're having that chat with them, if you're um, if you stick to your beliefs and that... They will say okay in the end. But totally. they will they will then have to tell someone else why they didn't get some sort of uh discount, right? And they're gonna have yeah, a no, decent, a decent that. enough story to back that up for them, right? <laughs> so, you know, I I just stick to it and I just I don't do it in a horrible way, I just do it in a matter of fact way. And because you're just giving margin away if you do, and it it's crazy to just discount to get a customer i just don't do that right
0: particularly particularly if you're going to end up letting them down later by virtue of not being able to support them or because you actually resent their business john this has been amazing are you happy for people to to reach out to you i'll put your linkedin um an email in in, in the show notes and um, whether whether they're customer side or other founders i know you're generous with your time and always looking to partner as well so open invites to reach out yeah
1: 100 mate as long as they're people like you
0: so uh... (laughs) I'm not sure there's that many people as mad as we are John but they can do their best (laughs) true true
1: brilliant thank you so much mate oh you're welcome good chatting